It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. If you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 in the Bible, in your Bible today. Romans chapter 7 in your Bible today. Uh, how many of you understand that misunderstandings happen on a regular basis? Anybody ever have those misunderstandings? Uh, sometimes they, um, well, they just, they just happen. I don't think anybody intentionally tries for them. Maybe every once in a while a teenager would, but as a general rule, they uh, just kind of happen. And I was reading a, a website this week, and uh, they asked people to write in some misunderstandings that had happened in their life. And uh, one uh, lady wrote in, she was trying to get ketchup out of a jar, a ketchup jar, an old Heinz 57 ketchup jar. By the way, I'm glad, I don't know about you, but I'm glad that they have switched to plastic. How many of you are happy with that? I just squeeze it, it comes out, it's a blessing. Uh, you know, some people are like, I didn't, and you're not a ketchup person. If you don't like plastic, you're not a ketchup person because it took forever in the Heinz. How many of you are old enough to remember sticking a french fry up inside of the, plas- of the glass bottle trying to get it out? Well, there's a, um, this lady was uh, trying to get some ketchup out for her daughter at home and, and the phone rings. And so she tells her four-year-old daughter, uh, she's trying to get it out. And you know how it is when you're trying to get the ketchup out of the bottle. You're nailing it, nailing the bottle, trying to get it to come out, getting frustrated. And she tells her four-year-old daughter, she says, hey, the phone's ringing. Go answer the phone. So the little girl literally went and answered, and this is what she said. She said, hello, this is Amanda. Mommy can't come to the phone right now. She's hitting the bottle. It just happened. Uh, One guy wrote in. He said, my toddler was about to hit her head on the monkey bars at the playground, so I told her to duck. And she quacked and then hit her head. Misunderstandings. This guy ran into a service station and he, he runs, he drives in there, he gets out of his car kind of frantic and he says, I need some 710. I, I got to get some 710. And the guy at the service station was going, what, what are you talking about, 710? 710? I don't, what is that? Some special additive for gas? He goes, no, 710. I need 710. The guy at the service station goes, I, sir, I don't know what to tell you. So the guy popped his hood, ran up, took the oil cap off and handed it to him. 710, turned it upside down the other way. And it says, oil, misunderstandings, misunderstandings happen. One guy wrote in when I was five or six, I was told to watch my baby cousin who was asleep on the couch. And he said, I did. I watched my baby cousin on the couch and roll off into the floor. I had no problem watching her. Parents just weren't super, super Clear. I love this one because this one has happened to me. Um, a mom said to her son, they were in the car, they were leaving a grocery store, and as they're pulling out, she's getting ready to turn left, and, and she said to her son, are there any cars coming? He said, no, she's about to go, and he goes, but there is a big truck. That's never happened to you. You haven't asked your kids for something like that yet. Misunderstandings. They can be silly, But the reality is sometimes they can be very, very devastating. It can cost us major financial problems if we misunderstand the paperwork or we misunderstand what the accountant says. I mean, it can can cost us a lot of money. There can be friendship costs. 
How many of you have ever had a tense relationship with a friend over nothing more than a misunderstanding? And they say, you said this and you meant this. And you're like, I didn't mean that. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. Yes, you did. And before long, there's a fracture in the friendship because of a misunderstanding. I am a counselor and there have been more than a few times I've sat with folks either at their house or my office or a coffee shop or somewhere and I've listened to them tell their story about their need for counsel and the vast majority of the time it's a misunderstanding. As we come to our text this morning, we are confronted with a church at Rome who has a misunderstanding of the law. There's a large portion in the church that didn't understand what the law is, and we'll refer to that term, the law, many times. And as we just go verse by verse through the book of Romans, we've come to this passage in 7 to 13 that deals with the law. Now, just so that we have definition of the law, I want to be clear, it's a the system of laws, civil statutes, priestly ordinance comprising the Mosaic covenant, especially understood as the means of earning God's favor. Sometimes people think that the law is just the Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments would kind of be the picture of the law, but there is much more to the law than simply the Ten Commandments. Now, in order to understand Romans chapter 7, we have to do a little bit of repetition or I have to give you a reminder of what's going on in Romans chapter 6. There were a group of Christians in Rome who were a part of the church and they're dealt with in Romans chapter 6 who thought they could sin and God was okay with it because they were saved by grace. They thought, hey, I could do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, because I'm saved by grace, and grace covers everything, and so God is okay with it. It would be, here would be some of the ways people say this in our day. God loves me no matter what. That's a true statement. God loves me no matter what, but it doesn't give me the freedom to sin. Only God can judge me. It's another true statement when it talks about eternal judgment. Only God can judge. And then, this is what some people say, it's only a little sin. What does it matter? It's not like it's murder or something. People make that statement all the time. Well, Paul deals with that, and we see that being dealt with in Romans chapter 6, verse number 1, where he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Or in other words, should we keep on sinning so that God's grace is seen? And then verse number two, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So he deals with people who thought they could just sin and and God be okay with it and says, no, 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 God's not okay with your sin. And then we transition to Romans chapter seven to another gospel-centered discussion. And essentially Romans chapter seven is dealing with people who have this idea that they could perform enough good works in order to work their way to heaven. If I do enough good, then God has to be pleased with me because I have kept the law. Romans chapter 7, verse number 4. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him that is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit, 
unto God. Now, there were some of the people in the church who didn't think they could earn their salvation by doing good, but they thought that they could merit special um, favor or relationship with God by doing good. And Paul is saying, just a big picture, Romans chapter 7, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That's not the way that it works. The argument that some were making, there was, there was a, a, a kind of a convergence of arguments that are being made that Paul is dealing with, that we're still under the law. We're saved by grace, yes, through faith, yes, and Christ alone, yes, but we still have to keep the law. And Paul is making this very clear and candid argument in Romans chapter 7. You are no longer bound to the law. You are dead to the law through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6. You are co-crucified with Christ on the cross if you have repented of your sin and trusted Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. Well, then the question has to be asked. If that's the case, is the Old Testament unimportant? Well, no. Romans chapter 15, verse number four says, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. And a couple of weeks ago when I preached the first message out of Romans chapter seven, I dealt with an, I spent an aggregate amount of time uh, dealing with uh, the fact that the Bible is to be obeyed, the Bible is to be submitted to in our daily lives. Matter of fact, of the Ten Commandments, though we're dead to the law, and we'll get into this more, but I got to give this overview. And it's, listen, if this is your first week here, Romans is the deepest book in the Bible, in my opinion, and, and most people's opinion. And Romans 6, 7, and 8 are the de- is, is probably the deepest section in the book of Romans. And I would tell you, Romans chapter 7 is the deepest or most difficult of all of those. Romans chapter 7 is difficult to read. It's like a, a church tongue twister uh, the whole way through. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul is dealing with the, the reality that we're dead to the law. But does that mean we are free to sin if we're dead to the law? And the answer is emphatically no. Well, I'm not free to sin, but I'm dead to the law. I'm no longer bound to the law. Right. But every one of the 10 commandments, which we're about to read, but one, so nine of the 10 are all relisted in the New Testament, affirmed and expounded upon within the New Testament. So it's not like God simply says, you can do whatever you want. Now that you're saved, just go, you know, live your own life. No, no, no. There's still these commandments that God has. And the 10 commandments are listed in the Bible. We'll look at them in in a few minutes. But the one commandment that we are no longer bound to is Exodus chapter 20, verse number eight, where it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall thou labor and do thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor the stranger that is within thy gate. What does that mean, pastor? Well, it means you are no longer bound to the law that says you can't work on Saturdays. You can work on Saturdays. Some of you worked yesterday. You didn't break the law of God by working on a Saturday. You're no longer bound to the law that, that says you're not allowed to work on Saturday. You say, was that really a law? Yeah. In the Old Testament, we have this story 
The children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and a guy was picking up sticks on the Sabbath day on Saturday and God told them not to pick up sticks on the Sabbath day, but he did it anyway. They arrest him. They take him before Moses. Moses says, God, what do you want me to do? Moses literally prays and asks God, what do you want me to do? And God says, stone him to death. That's a pretty powerful thing for picking up sticks. That's not me saying it. That's just what happened. So this was a very, very important note. They, the children of Israel went on to mess that up later, just like we probably would have, but they went on to mess that up later. But the point is, this is a very serious issue to the Lord. Well, we are freed from that rule of working, not working on Saturday and, and only going to church on Saturday. And you say, well, so I don't need to go to church anymore? No, 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 no. Don't jump Jesus' gun yet. You got a false start. Get back into the starting blocks. New Testament gives greater clarity and emphasis to the gathering of the saints, meaning the gathering of the church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 1. It says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him. The unto him doesn't mean in heaven. The unto him means we gather together under him, unto him on this earth when the church body meets together. To give greater emphasis there, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, not ignoring church when we meet together is what it means, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The word assembling here does not merely denote the idea of gathering together or assembling for corporate worship as a solitary or an occasional act, but as a customary act. And in the Greek, the first, there's a prefix to the word, synegeoi, and it's the, the prefix epi. And the epi refers to Jesus Christ himself as the one to whom this assembly was attached. In other words, it would have the meaning of not betraying one's attachment to Jesus Christ and other believers by avoiding our personal responsibility as part of the body of Christ. Let me meld all that down for a second. It means don't skip church because church is attached to Jesus Christ and other believers and it's a non-optional thing or, or responsibility for the believer to be in church. It's not optional. That's why it's a declarative statement in Hebrews 10.25. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together or don't miss the assembling of yourselves together because the assembling of yourselves together is not just simply meeting one with another, it's one with another and Jesus. It's one with another and Jesus. The church, when we meet, it's... It's not like Jesus is here. He's here. I'm not being super metaphysical about that or mystical about that. But when we gather together, we're not simply gathering together to hear somebody teach things out of an ancient book that might help our lives. 
We are gathering together so that we can corporately worship the Lord, that we can corporately give praise to him. He is the reason, the reason that we meet together and our meeting together or our gathering together is expressly attached to the person of Jesus Christ. And when, here's what the word assembly means. You say you're making more of this than it is. Not at all, probably not making enough. When we ignore the gathering, it's a powerful word, we're ignoring Jesus Christ. Now listen, I have great sensitivity to first responders, folks in the military, even some folks in the, folks in the medical field. We, we are thankful for your service. I, I want every police officer in San Diego to get saved. I, want, I, 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 I go on ride-alongs. I pray all the time for that. We're working towards that. We, we, we're doing a lot of things to try to help people come to Jesus Christ in the first responder community. Listen, if, if we had no cops on the street on Sunday, I could tell you the day of the largest crime in San Diego. So I'm sensitive to that. I don't want the military all to put down their weapons on Sunday. If that were to happen, I can assure you when we would probably be attacked would be Sunday. But that's the exception to the rule. I understand there's sickness from time to time. I get that. But the church, I just want to be clear, we're not bound by the law to the Sabbath but that doesn't mean we get to use our, our, our days and our time just however we see fit and just live and let live. And I want to take a job and I'll let Buford, my son, go take a job over here and, and, and uh, Buford's sister take a job over here. It's just no big deal. I mean, it's just church. I'll just have them watch online or listen. Listen, I'm thankful for online church, but let me be very, very clear here. Gathering means gathering, not watching online. That's not a gathering. That's online. It's no more of a gathering than it would be for you to say, hey, went to the gym today. Oh, really? What'd you do? Pulled up YouTube and watched a few people work out, which is how some of you actually work out. <laughs> Bowl of ice cream watching somebody deadlift. Gathering online is better than nothing, nothing, but it's not church. And you need to view it according to the word assembly in Hebrews 10, 25, as your responsibility as a Christian to be in church. You say, pastor, why would you say that? Well, I say that number one, because it's in the scripture. Number two, because one of these days, 2 Corinthians chapter five, you're gonna stand before the Lord and give an account of the time you used in your body for what you did with your body. And he's gonna say, why didn't you assemble in my name? No, he's going to say, why didn't you assemble in my name with the assembly that you are a part of or the church that you are a part of? Or why didn't you go to church? Well, you know, the Padres are playing the Phillies. And I mean, we only like get this far once in a lifetime. Creation happens more often than we go to the World Series. I mean, Pastor... What do you think? I think we have a responsibility to go to church. I think there's a big time biblical responsibility for me to be in church. Now, I get it when you're sick. I get it if you absolutely have to work. I understand that. But the reason people often miss church is not for those reasons. 
Matter of fact, the Bible gives greater clarity than the, the New Testament gives greater clarity than the Old Testament. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The word redeeming means to purchase back or to make the most of the time that you have here on this earth for the cause of Christ because we live in an evil time. Colossians chapter 4, verse number 5 says, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. I, I find it challenging in my own heart that people often say, uh, yeah, I just can't go to church. It's, you know, COVID and sickness and all this other stuff, and I just have to be very protective. Well, I, I would give credence to that if you weren't going out to eat every day, if you weren't going to Walmart every day. I have a feeling one cart at Walmart has more germs than all of us combined. If you don't think so, Take one of those blue black lights to Walmart, spray it, and see the germs everywhere. You'll never go back to Walmart. You'll only go to Target. There's no germs there. Um, <laughs> and the reality is that Satan wants to keep us out of the gathering, he wants to keep us out of the assembly. You say, why are you saying all that? Well, because if a pastor says, well, God says we're not under the bondage of the Sabbath anymore. I don't have to go to church. Okay, we're not under the bondage of the Sabbath anymore, but that's not the end of the story. And I would be derelict as a pastor to not communicate the truth of God's word in total if I were to make such a statement as that. Yeah, you're not under the law of the Sabbath. You're under the law of grace. And grace laws are always greater because they're motivational in nature than our didactic laws of God that are, that are, you must do this. God says, you have to do this. And I'm inspecting your heart as you do it. So Paul, writing these Christians in Rome, is answering this question in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 to, the paragraph runs through verse 25, but there's, it, it's no way we could get that done in a timely manner. And Paul is answering the question, what is the Christian's relationship to the law? Now, there were some in the church today who grew up thinking, I, I have to keep the law to have a relationship with God. There are also some who think that now that they have been saved and they know their salvation is not tied to the law, but they believe they still have to keep the law in order to earn God's favor. So the question that has to be asked is, what is the law's relationship to mankind? Verse number seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. I want you to notice this morning, verse number seven, that the law brings sin to light. The law brings sin to light. I had not known lust except the law said, thou shalt not covet. The word sin just means an offense to God. So the question is, if we're under grace, is the law sin? The, 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 is the law sin? God forbid is the law an offense to God? God forbid, may it never be. No, a thousand times no. The, the strongest negative phrase in the Greek language is this phrase, God forbid, absolutely not. No way, no way, no way. That's literally what he's saying. The, is, is, the, is the law sin? Absolutely not. I wouldn't know, Paul goes on, I had not known sin but by the law. I wouldn't know that I was a sinner if there hadn't been a law. Though we are in the age of grace, 
It is the Christian alone who is no longer bound by the law. If you're here today and you don't know God, Jesus Christ is your personal savior, if you've never repented of your sin, that means to agree with God that you're a sinner and turn from your sin and accepted Christ alone to save you. If you've never done that, the reality is you're still under the law and you will be judged by the law. So for the person who is judged by the law, here's the list that you'll be judged by. You'll have no other gods before me. You'll make no idols. You can't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Even OMG. Oh, Pastor, you can't be No, no, that's the magnitude of the law. That's not, that's, I didn't write it. I'm just telling you how you'd be judged. That's what it means. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If you've ever missed church on a Saturday, which would be hard to find, you're toast. Because that's the law. Honor your mother and your father, or your father and your mother, which means give them the highest level, even as an adult, of respect and human reverence possible. And by the way, that's in the New Testament as well. Amen. Now, I say that hoping my daughters will watch what I just said, but my parents will be here on Wednesday. And I'm commanded to honor my father and mother. I'll go on. You should, don't murder. Jesus said it this way. When I say don't murder, this is Jesus talking here in Matthew chapter five. It's not just that you're not allowed to murder. You're not even to dislike someone so much that you want to punch them. Because if you want to punch them, it's the same as murder. He said, well, I felt like that at four with my brother. Okay. Didn't keep the law. Broke it. You shouldn't commit adultery. Jesus said it's not just committing adultery, but if you look at somebody else with lust in your heart, he says that's the same as committing adultery. Somebody other than your spouse. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You should not covet or lust even after stuff. This, this is how we transliterate that in a modern day term. And that is you buy something that you don't need on credit that you can't afford only because you feel like it's a good thing. I was talking to somebody recently about Jesus and sharing the gospel and they were struggling with the thought that they were a sinner and I read the 10 commandments to them or recited them to them and, and they looked at me and they said, Chris, there's no way in this world anyone could keep those. Right, right. Matter of fact, Here's what the Bible says in James chapter two, verse number 10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and offend in one point is guilty of all. The law is a connected chain. You could keep all of them and break one, you're guilty of all of them. I mean, it, it, is, it is massive. The law brings sin to light. Here's the reality. I mean, I, you might not like this message when you leave. You might love this message when you leave. But I really hope you understand this by the time that you leave. And that is that just like me, you are a sinner. The law brings sin to light. You and I have sinned against God. And that's what Paul says in our text. I had not known lust except the law said, thou shalt not covet. Oh, 
Ah, now I violated God's law. Not only does the law bring sin to light, verses eight and nine, the law brings sin to life. But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Occasion, a starting point, an opportunity to to produce or to create a tendency towards. So sin used the commandment to produce in me. Here's what it's saying. Sin taking occasion or opportunity or, 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 or a tendency. Sin taking opportunity by the commandment, by the, the law, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, a word we never use, uh, but it means a strong desire, evil cravings. Some of you might have a translation in, with you that says covetousness, a, 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 a all manner of, of covetousness or strong desire or evil cravings. So sin used the commandment, uh, took the opportunity to use the 10 commandments to bring about in me all manner of covetousness or strong desire for without the law, sin was dead. Here's what he's saying. Because I am by nature a sinner, Romans chapter three, verse 10, Romans chapter three, verse 23, because I am by nature a sinner, when it came to light, there was sin. I was attracted to the sin. Therefore, I actually did more sin than I was originally going to do. Here. The law doesn't keep me from sin. The law actually brings sin to life. It doesn't only let me know that I'm a sinner. It actually exacerbates the problem because deep inside in the heart of man, I am so rebellious that when I understood, rebellious to God and his word, because I understand that when God tells me not to do it, I still want to do it. And the commandment, was given clearly and sin used that commandment to exacerbate a strong lustful desire to be disobedient to God. We'll do some work here for a minute just so we can help you. Verse number eight, sin taking this occasion, this opportunity by the commandment wrought in me all manner of strong desire. This is why you can see, I come from a family of addicts. My dad was an alcoholic by the time he was 17, got drunk the first time at nine. Um, I mean, my uncle, my grandfather was an alcoholic, seven uncles, five of them were alcoholics, almost six. One was deathly allergic to alcohol. I mean, I come from a family of alcoholics, my cousins in the same age or generation as me, many of them addicts on both sides of the family. Uh, I know what addiction is. I know what addiction does, all right? So you understand I'm not being unkind in this illustration. This is, this is the world that my family has lived truly for generations, for generations. Oh, wanna get high? Sure, let's get high. Let's uh, take a hit of whatever. The hit is taken. Oh, that's pretty good. Feeling good. I'll take more. I'll take more. I'll keep taking more and more 
and more and more and more and more and do it again and do it again and do it again until eventually I've just OD'd. And it happens over, some of you are shaking your heads, you know what I'm talking about. It happens over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. One of the great crises facing our day in America today is the fentanyl crisis. Leading cause of death for people 18 to 42. It used to just be men. Now it's men and women. I, I, I hope that you're very careful around this time of year because fentanyl pills look almost identical to sweet tarts. Not exaggerating. Just heard some tragic stories from officers I was with this week. I mean, it's, it's an it's a epidemic in our world. And people know where it leads. And they know where it leads before it starts. But yet, inside of man is this deep-seated rebellion that is so, so ingrained in us to, to ignore God's law, to, to entice ourselves with, with continued rebelliousness and disobedience, that when sin, we see sin happen or, or available, we take it and we take it further and further and further and further until ultimately, chapter 6, verse 23, the end state of it is death. That's what verse number 8 is talking about. Uh, Let me illustrate it this way. There's not a person in this room this morning that doesn't understand the devastation that adultery and sexual sins cause. Everybody understands that. Nobody's ever ended that well. That's never ended well. And yet people think like, oh, I can handle it. I'll be able to take it. So somebody speaks to them and they're enticed and there's an excitement there. And and then it's like, I want to take this further and I want to take this further and I want to take this further and I want to take this further over and over and over till the point, verse number eight, it wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, all manner of covetousness. There's such a deep-seated rebellion inside of each and every one of us. This is what Paul is saying. There's such a deep-seated rebellion inside of each and every one of us that when we we see sin a little, we'll take it and do it a lot. You see that bowl of banana pudding? One bowl would be sufficient, and it's not long till the whole bowl is gone. Oh, no, you were good on the fentanyl and adultery, but come on. Okay, forget banana pudding. You'll see that taco? (laughs) Yeah, now we crossed the line, didn't we? The Mexicans in the crowd just left the church. That's the point he's making. I know it's a heavy truth. It's heavy for all of us. See, it doesn't matter the sin. This is why I, was, I, was, I, I really toyed with giving an illustration to this. But it, I didn't feel like I could communicate the truth without a, a, some illustrations. When 
sin comes to light. Then it comes to life. And we want to do it more and more and more. Look at verse number nine. For I was alive without the law once as a child, but when the commandment came, when I heard what the law said, the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The word revived is the same word we use for revival, same root word. It, it, it means to come to life. By the way, this is a one-time event. Like when I heard the commandment, man, this rebellion blew up inside of me. There's heart of rebellion in us that when we're told no, that's the very thing we want to do. When we're told we should do something, that's the very thing we don't want to do. Why? Because there's a deep-seated, like, I don't need that. I don't have to do that. Who? Nobody's the boss of me. I can do this all on my own. I'm good. I'm fine. And, and, and that's what Paul is dealing with in this text. I was alive without the law one time, but when the commandment came, sin came to life. And as soon as sin came to life, I died. I died because of sin. I died because of the sin nature. I'm spiritually dead because of sin. I have no relationship with God because of sin. I really have very limited, open, vulnerable relationships with mankind because of sin. That's why Paul was able to say with such confidence in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Verse number 10, and the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Ordained means to result in or appointed or promised. The point of the 10 commandments was to, was to bring life. That's why God gave it. But the reality, the end state of the commandment is death because I, I saw the law, it brought light to my sin. And then the rebelliousness that's inside of me, inside of every one of us was attracted to the light of sin. And I wanted more of sin and more of sin and more of sin and more of sin until it ultimately ended in death. If I had a dollar for every time somebody told me they could handle it or they thought they could handle it, I'd probably be a well-off man. See, the purpose of sin, verse number 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. The word occasion is the same word we looked at in verse number eight. It's a starting point. So sin, taking this opportunity by the commandment, by the law, it deceived me. It tricked me. And then it killed me. Sin does two things. In chapter six, sin says you can do whatever you want to do because God's grace should cover it. That's why 6.1, what shall we say? Then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? There, the, the sin tricks you into saying, God loves you no matter what. God loves you no matter what. Just go ahead, live your life, party, get it on, get lit up, get laid. It doesn't matter. God will show you a tremendous amount of grace. Now, let me stop and say this. The grace of God is greater than every sin. Romans 5, 21, uh, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. There's no sin that you could ever do that is beyond the reach of God's wonderful, merciful, abundant grace. But it doesn't mean that you're without consequence. 
And then chapter 7, another trick of the devil is that sin makes sanctifying legalists out of us. These people knew they were saved by grace, but they thought they would earn special relationship and favor with God by keeping the law and proving their own goodness. And Paul is trying to make this clear to them because they're saying we could do good, we could do good, we could do good, we could do good. There were some who were still saying we have to do good. Yes, we're saved by grace, but we have to keep the law. The law is amazing. The law is fantastic. Got to keep the law. 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 If you don't keep the law, it's evidence that you're not saved. And, and, and Paul, Paul is trying to, to point out here that the law has a tendency to make a legalist or a licentious or a person of license out of us. It, it has two tricks. It's like this, the, the, the person says, I won't commit adultery, I'll never commit adultery, but their, their mind is captivated by sexual thoughts of a person other than their spouse. Matthew chapter five, verse number 27, Jesus said, you heard it had been said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery, quoting obviously Exodus chapter 20. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus said, if you just think about it. Dude, if you're thinking about another woman or ladies, another man, or in our culture, men, another man, or women, another woman, Jesus says it's already been done in your heart. Take an occasion by the commandment, it deceives me. Sin is deceptive. Sin tells you you can handle it. Sin can, tells you, oh, you, you've got this under control. It's only one beer. It's only two beers. It's, it's only, you know, one hit. It's, it's only making out with somebody that's other than your wife. I mean, come on, just live and let live a little bit. Sin deceives us. It, it, it's only one position of legalism. It's only one stance that you're trying to prove your worth and value to God by your behavior. In Genesis chapter three, the story of the fall, this is such a difficult passage when, as we begin to understand it more and more throughout life. Where the Bible says in Genesis 3, one, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, the serpent said unto Eve, yea, if God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. God didn't say they shouldn't eat of every tree of the garden. God just said you shouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, you shall not eat of it. Listen to this phrase, neither shall you touch it lest you die. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. Biblically, they could have made a tree house in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and slept in there. They could have had a swing. Oh, where are we going to swing today? We're going to go to the knowledge of good and evil swing, and we're going to swing on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They could have done whatever they wanted to do with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but they weren't allowed to eat the fruit. That was God's word. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. God knows in the day you eat thereof that your eyes shall be open and you shall be as gods knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eyes and treated to be desired to make one wise. And she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave unto her husband also with her and he did eat. 
Sin deceived her. Deceived. That's what it does. See, you have to come to grips with this reality. Satan absolutely hates you. He despises you, and he has one thought, and that is to destroy you. And he wants to make the destruction as big as he possibly can. That's all he wants to do. He hates you. The, the, the Bible says about, the, about Satan, calls him the enemy, and that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's all that he has. That's all that he desires. That's why the Bible says in verse number 11 that he slew me to die spiritually. Over the years, Canyon Ridge Baptist Church has had both groups of people. We've had hyper-legalist people. They, they, uh, it's almost comical if it wasn't so tragic. I, I, I feel like telling you a bunch of funny stories, but time and, and temperament won't allow for at the moment. But I mean, they were, they, they, everything had to be just right for them. And if you weren't just like them, they were going to try to confront you. Hey, I, they would say things like this. I don't think the clothes you're wearing are right. I, I don't think that the car you drive is right. I don't think the way you discipline your children is right. I don't think the way you spend your time is right. This is how we do it. And if you want to be right with God, you've got to do it the way that we do it. They sidestepped all church authority. They were legalists and sanctifying legalists. And they literally believed that they had, they had a, a special, special insight on the things of God. And everybody else was wrong who didn't do it their exact way. You got to wear, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say some of this. The, the color shirts that they wear, the kind of clothes and shoes that they wear. I mean, everything was exactly, some of you are around with some of these folks. God deliver us from them, or I think he has. If not, we can talk to you later. Um, but I mean, they were just so legalistic. They had this esoteric or special knowledge that everything had to be done their way. Well, the reality is, once their legalism got shot down biblically because they had no Bible moorings about themselves, then they crossed over to the other side and sin went from a legalistic deception to now sin has become a licentious deception. And now in their life, these people aren't in our church anymore, but social media can make you sad sometimes if you've been somewhere 20 years. And, and you begin to see in their lives that, that their life is completely devoid void of any biblical restraint. Completely without any biblical restraint. They're not following any of the rules. They're not doing anything God asked them to do. They were over here and now they're over here. So then we have to finish and I'd like to elaborate, but I can't. Verse number 12, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Was in that which is good made death to me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Here's the reality. Because the question's now being asked by the folks in the church. Well, if that's, 
If that's the law, then is the law bad? And Paul says, no, no, no. The law is good. Sin is bad. The law is good. Sin is bad. The law is a system of laws or civil statutes, priestly ordinances comprising the Mosaic covenant, especially to be understood as earning God's favor. There's a reason the law is good. Paul lists three reasons that the law is good here in verse number 12. It's holy. The word holy means it's set apart. It's morally pure. It's majestic. It's, it's above all other codes. It's above all other laws. It's, a, it's above all other papers and constitutions. It is set apart as God's code. It is set apart in that it reveals God's nature and will. It's set apart that it exposes sin and all that is contrary to God's nature and will. The law is holy in that it is different and set apart from everything else on the earth. The law is God's way of holiness, the way to live a life of holiness, the the way that is so different and so set apart that no man could ever reach or attain its purity. Well, it's holy and just. Where just means righteous and fair and impartial, equitable, straight. The law treats a man exactly like a man should be treated. It shows no partiality to anyone. It reveals how men should treat others. The Bible does not discriminate based on color of skin or socioeconomic status or the amount of money that you have or heritage or family background. The the law accepts you as you are and judges you as you are. The law is just in that it reveals exactly how you should live and it shows you how to live in relation to God and to his fellow man and it judges man fairly and impartially. There's a call in our world by many to, to, to remove God from every vestige and fabric of society and yet those same people cry for justice. Can I tell you that there is no equitable justice without God and without God's law. The law is holy and just and good. It shows men how to live and it tells them when he fails to live that way. The law holds you accountable. It exposes your sin and demonstrates your desperate need for a savior. The law tells man the truth about the nature of man. The law does not coddle you. The law does not, does not encourage your sin. The law is God's explicit way of pointing you towards your need for help outside of yourself. The law points you to Jesus Christ alone. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 19:7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statute of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. And moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great He finishes this first major point of the paragraph with verse 13. Was then that which is good made death to me? God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. The law makes sin noticeable 
and obvious. Have you ever, I, I grew up, my, my dad started church in Western Washington when I was three years old and lived there until I was 13. And Washington is known as the apple state. You have Washington delicious apples. And most of them are grown in central Washington, a couple hundred miles from where I was raised. But everywhere in Washington you go, there's, there's apple trees. You don't have to go very far, especially 40 years ago when I was raised there. You didn't have to go very far to find apples. And, and they just grow wild out. And you might see pine trees. And then somebody just planted some apple trees on the side of the road or whatever. And you'd get out and you could pick them during the apple season. And if you don't see this much in stores anymore, but back in the day when we would pick apples, you would look at the apples and you were looking for a wormhole. And we used to think that worms burrowed themselves into the apple to eat the fruit or the meat of the apple. But I've since discovered, I'm sure that, you know, apple growers have known this forever, but that worms actually grow from the inside of the apple out. That when there's an, uh, a blossom, an apple blossom on a tree, an insect will come in and, and lay an egg on the apple blossom. And then as the apple begins to germinate and grow, that egg begins to grow and it comes to life. And the egg turns into a worm and the worm eats itself from the inside out, not the outside in. Here's what the law does for you. It reveals to you that you're a sinner not by nurture, but by nature. You're a sinner on the inside and it simply demonstrates itself on the outside. That's why we say the law brings sin to light. And in verse number 13, he reiterates this concept is that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but that it might appear sin. God gave the law so that I would know that what's inside of me is sin working death in me. There's no theoretical way that a person's not a sinner. And Paul ends this verse number 13, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Here's the reality as we conclude. God wants you to see your sin. Exceeding means extraordinarily extraordinary, over and above, beyond what you think. God wants you to see your sin that you don't think is bad or not that bad as extraordinarily sinful. I'll just watch porn on Friday nights. Extraordinarily sinful. I'll just treat my children like trash once a week. Extraordinarily sinful. I'll not love my wife as my own body. Extraordinarily sinful. I'll not obey God by attending services, extraordinarily sinful. I, I'll let my, pick, my kids pick their own religion, extraordinarily sinful. 
he wants us to see it as that. Why? Because when we see our sin as extraordinarily sinful, we are then motivated to run to the only one who can give us any sense of relief. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, my life's jacked up. Yeah, it is. And you're supposed to see it as that. But you're also supposed to see the wonder-working power of God through the person of Jesus Christ who loves you and died for you. And if you will repent of your sin, he promises to give you eternal life if you will put your faith and trust in him and him alone, not in your good behavior, not in your license. Don't misunderstand the law. The law is good. Sin is bad. The law proves that you're a sinner. The law proves you need a savior. And Jesus Christ alone wants to save you. And here's how much he wants to save you. He died for you. Because there's people in here today thinking you did good by coming to church. And we're glad you're here. But you know, and the Lord knows, you've never repented of your sin and trusted him as your savior. But... But pastor, I'm nice to my neighbors. Good, keep being nice to your neighbors, but you're still not saved. But pastor, I help out in the children's ministry. That's good, keep helping out, but you're still not saved. But pastor, I'm a, I'm a good spouse. Good, keep being a good spouse, but you're still not saved. Why? Because all the efforts you try to do literally prove you'll never be good enough to earn salvation. The law was given to prove you're a sinner in need of a savior and only Jesus Christ can save you. The law is good, sin is bad. Sin sends you to hell, Jesus will take you to heaven if you'll acknowledge that you're a sinner, repent of your sin, and ask Christ to come into your heart and save you. Say, how do I do that? By praying a prayer, something similar to this. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And the best I know how I repent of my sin, I turn from my sin, and I turn and I trust only you to save me. If you'll pray that prayer, he promises, listen to me, he promises he will save you. No matter what you've done, he promises he will save you. If you're a Christian here today, God's spoken. Maybe church is a casual thing for you. Maybe loving your spouse is a casual thing. I mean, we've, we've tried to illustrate this truth in a deeper way. The Holy Spirit's done a work in your life today. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Be surrendered to whatever he's done in your life. Whatever he's done. Father, bless our time in the word today. We're thankful for you. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.